you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 14 this morning. If you're taking notes, you'll notice that there's a typo. It still says Romans 13 on the top of the note sheet. And if uh, you are of such a type A persuasion that that really bothers you, you can send me an email and I will print out a one that says Romans 14 for you next week and you can transfer your notes. I know that will be an issue for at least one or two people, so uh, I, I, don't mind, I don't mind doing that. But we are in Romans chapter 14 this morning. Several years ago, I think probably Melinda and I were watching a, a television show. Uh, being a nurse, we, uh, we often uh, watch medical shows, and um, uh, sometimes those shows are corrected in what they present on television uh, be, because of the lack of reality that's there, but they're fun to watch nonetheless. And I remember we had this discussion about, um, about trauma triage. If there's a, an accident or some kind of disaster and there's just kind of bodies everywhere, uh, medical professionals are, are, are trained to go in and uh, make triage decisions. Triage is just uh, the, from the French word that means to sort out. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're sorting these bodies, uh, some that, you know, they've just got a little scrape on their head from, uh, you know, a piece of glass that grazed them and cut them. They're going to be fine. You just leave them and move on. You've got somebody else who's had their wind knocked out of them, you know. Uh, you know, you, you, you move on. Other people, they've got a gaping wound and, and you re realize they need immediate medical attention. Uh, and, and so one of the things that she said was that they actually use color-coded tags uh, to, to, talk, to show the severity of the injuries. And you go to those people that have the most severe injuries first. And interestingly enough, uh, she said that they actually, uh, in those kind of immediate trauma situations where they just can't get to everybody, there's actually some people whose, whose injuries are so severe you just don't bother helping them. You know, it doesn't matter what you do in this moment, they're not going to make it. And they receive a, a black tag that's laid on top of them. I remember thinking as she's telling me that uh, I, now my greatest fear is being in some kind of accident and kind of coming to and seeing a big black tag on my chest and thinking, oh no, you know, I'm done for, you know. So anyway, uh, you can pray for me about that. But uh, the reason why I'm telling you all that is because this idea of, of trauma triage, of, of medical triage, is a good illustration that helps us to think about biblical and theological issues. In fact, one of the leaders in our denomination, a man by the name of Al Mohler, has suggested the phrase theological triage to help us to think through what, is, what, what are matters of true importance and matters of a secondary nature that aren't really that important in the long, in the long term. So, for example, he says that first-level theological issues are those doctrines which are essential to the Christian faith. These are the doctrines that decide whether or not you are an orthodox believer or whether you're a heretic. And those kind of beliefs are most often and most closely associated with the gospel of Jesus Christ, how one is saved. So things like the authority of Scripture, the nature of Christ and the Trinity, the meaning of justification, those are all kinds of non-negotiables that if you think something different than what the historic church has thought, you're no longer a Christian. You might call yourself that, but in truth you are not. Meanwhile, second-order doctrines are important enough that, in his words, they create significant boundaries between believers, but they're not so essential as to determine whether or not we're Christians. So, for example, what does the Bible teach about baptism? Well, if you've been here long enough, you know what we believe the Bible teaches about baptism. But there are good, godly Presbyterians that would think something different. That difference of belief is substantial enough that we have two different churches. We have a Presbyterian church and we have a Baptist church. But we both believe the same gospel. 
And therefore, we can work together and have partnership and fellowship in many Christian ministries and endeavors. Finally, there are third order issues. These are beliefs and convictions that we disagree about, but do not prevent us from having fellowship in the same church. So uh, this, might, um, this might be anything about how we uh, interpret a, a particularly difficult text that's unclear, or even how the return of Christ is going to play out in history. The problem comes when these third order issues become so significant in our minds that they jump up to the level of second or even first level issues. That we make a category mistake and take something that's not really that important and we make it really, really important for fellowship and even sometimes for determining whether or not someone is actually saved. That's what Paul is going to talk about here in Romans 14. His concern is unity in the fellowship of God's people and something that potentially could threaten it. Specifically here, what could threaten it is this third level, this third tier, third order issue that becomes a real problem and creates a division between Jews and Gentiles. Remember, the Roman church is made up of two different ethnic groups, Jews and Gentiles. Actually, the Gentiles can be a dozen or more ethnic groups. It just means non-Jew. Uh, So you can have all kinds of different people from different ethnic backgrounds there. But the problem is, historically, theologically, there was a huge divide between these two groups. And now that they're come together in the church, it is essentially, it is vital for them to be unified among God's people. And yet, their cultural differences are creating potential stumbling blocks. And so in the verses we're going to look at this morning, what we want to see from Paul is how, especially those of mature faith on third order issues but also those of weak, th- weak faith on such issues need to love, respect, and tolerate one another in the church. In other words, we need to be striving for unified fellowship together. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 1. Paul has just talked about um, faith and not gratifying our, our desires in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he begins in chapter 14 as, one who is, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to, stand, to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be convinced fully in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. 
I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is God's word to us this morning. In Christ, we have many freedoms in many areas of our life. But those freedoms should not be fought for at all costs. What we want to see this morning is this great truth. This is how, if we were to summarize this message in one word or one sentence, it would be this. Christian fellowship is more important than Christian freedom. Christian fellowship is more important than Christian freedom. On secondary matters, if we're talking about gospel matters, then no, Christian freedom is above all because it means we're not bound to the law to keep it nor to be saved. But when we're talking about secondary matters, we should be willing to give up our freedom in order to maintain love and unity and make that a high priority in our life. And Paul directs us towards this by giving us two big points of application and several reasons why we should obey what he says. Now let me just say up front as we begin into this, the front end of this sermon, I mean, this sermon is front-loaded, okay? So we're going to get to point two, and you're going to think, good grief, he's going three hours today. No. Uh, after, we, after, we, after we get through the opening, it's gonna, we're going to move fast here, okay? So don't panic, all right? Hitchhiker, never mind. You don't get what that is. So anyway, uh, what's the first thing we should do, all right? Maintain fellowship with God's people. Very simple. Maintain fellowship with God's people. As God's people in general, but I would say with this church in particular, we have a great love for the truth of God's word. I mean, frankly, some of that's just just evidenced by the fact that I that I am able to keep restocking book giveaway books on that back table because so many of them are going away. Ninety nine point nine percent of them are just theology books, books on living the Christian life on the Bible, and people keep taking them. Uh, in, in, in terms of our conversation, in terms of the things that, that we do and we, we talk about, we, we love the truth of God's Word. We discuss it. We defend it. Those are all good things. But we have to be careful that in our zeal, we do not sin. That we don't turn into those who love the truth to be those that argue and gripe and snip at others who don't believe exactly the same way that we believe. We don't need to put lines in the sand and think ill of others when they don't agree with us on non-essential matters. Do you remember the Galatians? Uh, Doug preached on this several months ago about how there's only one gospel. And in the book of Galatians, Paul is a man on fire. He is railing against these people who would try to say that works are necessary for salvation. 
He says that's a false gospel. And he gives absolutely no room, no quarter. He gives absolutely no place for discussion at all when it comes to the gospel. He says there is only one gospel that comes from God and everything else is damnable heresy. But that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about areas that might be important, might not be important, but are definitely not matters of salvation. And therefore, there's room for flex. There's room for give and take. There's room for discussion without animosity, without cruelty, without judgment upon one another. Notice the kinds of things that he's talking about. In verse 2, Paul says, one believes he may eat anything, while the, while the weak person eats only vegetables. And in verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Again, in verse 21, drinking wine is in view. Some think it's okay, some think it's not. None of those are gospel issues. None of that's going to determine whether or not you're saved. And we're not talking about something explicitly sinful here. Remember, once again, Paul doesn't compromise when it comes to holiness. We're not talking about saying, well, this is, you know, this is actually sinful, but it's okay sometimes to sin. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. And, and, and frankly, some people take this idea of Christian liberty, Christian freedom, and that's exactly where they go with it. That they fall off the wagon, as it were, on into sin. That something should be so obvious, but in their minds, we've got this freedom, we've got this freedom, we've got this freedom, and they miss that part of our freedom is freedom to obey, freedom to rejoice, as Paul, we heard Paul say, in righteousness. So, for example, I was pretty shocked to hear one pastor preaching and saying that uh, someone in his church was invited by, um, it was a woman, invited by another group of women to a party where there was going to be a male stripper. And they saw no problem with that. There's a problem with that. Something has gone wrong in their thinking about what is acceptable and what is not. Likewise, many years ago, on a blog of all places, I write one, but I don't discuss on them anymore. Take that for what it is. I talked with a pastor who thought it was perfectly acceptable to use profanity all the time. No problem. He said, sometimes you just need to use the F word. Really? So, so even though Paul explicitly says, Ephesians 5, no corrupting talk, and not just talk with, with that corrupts, but no filthiness in your mouth, he does all kinds of theological gymnastics to get around that verse. Something has gone wrong there. We're not talking about things the Bible explicitly forbids. In those cases, Christian freedom is being abused. It's not freedom. It's lawlessness. At the same time, those who argue and fight about non-essential matters are also wrong. Our church should not divide over whether or not we put up Christmas decorations. Some churches have. I read about one church where there was one group that thought at the church Christmas party only, they should be able to put up a Christmas tree in the fellowship hall. Another group said no. So guess what? The Freedom Party brought their tree in, set it up, and guess what the other party did? They dragged it out of the church. Being offended, the other people went outside the church, grabbed it, and dragged it back in. They almost came to blows over a Christmas tree in the fellowship hall. Others get wound up about Revelation 20. I don't know how many times when we had a midweek service, people would come in, and the first question is, are you preaching on Revelation and I, I just thought to myself, this is not your church, man. 
This is not your church. If the first question out of your mouth is, are you preaching revelation? Then this is not the place for you. I mean, back when it was Joe and Richard and I, I think all three of us had slightly different interpretations of that. And it's fine because you know what we believe? Christ is coming back visibly, bodily. He's going to judge the living and the dead. Those that have faith are going to be with him forever and those that don't will be in hell forever. And that's, that's orthodoxy. Everything else is debatable. You have others that take issue and make a priority about card playing, movies, sports, dancing, tobacco, Bible translation. You know, my first time at men's camp, um, I, you know, here at Bambi Lake, I know some churches that I had, I have friends in down south, they would have had a heart attack because the first thing that came out were euchre cards or cards to play euchre with and guys smoking outside the lodge. They, they, would have, they, they would have just thought they were in hell seeing that Christians do that kind of stuff. Think about the fact that it's pretty pretty sad that we spent about 20 solid years in the church in the west arguing over music and something that was labeled the worship wars can you imagine a more unchristian phrase than worship wars and yet that's what we did we fought about church music and the reality is we never actually decided on it not not, not talking about this church but in general as a culture you know what we did we got clever separate but equal we'll go to multiple services We'll do an early service where there's lots of traditional hymns for the people that like that, and then we'll do kind of a mediocre service in the middle, and then the late service is full-out rock band. Friends, you got three churches there. If you cannot agree on music, how in the world are you going to stand in agreement on the gospel in the face of persecution? Something that is of so little consequence is elevated to this first priority of the part. We've got to have multiple services. Christians can't even worship together because... We have such different tastes in music, and that is so important to us. There's something fundamentally wrong there, friends. There's something fundamentally wrong there. But what is going on in the context of Romans 14? I've kind of front-loaded the application there, in case you're wondering. But what's the immediate issue going on here in Romans 14? There is a struggle with Christians who do not think they need to keep the law for salvation, again, keep that clear in your mind, but they think as a sign of obedience to Christ, there are certain parts they still need to obey in the law, or at least they need to live out even the context of Christians. And so those things involve eating meat, keeping the Sabbath, and drinking wine, according to Paul. Those are the three examples that he gives. Now, the law doesn't ever forbid eating meat. In fact, there are, there are certain times when you go to give an offering, you are commanded to eat a portion of the offering after it's offered up and cooked by the priest. So God actually commands you eat certain things. The Passover, you are to gather your family and you are to eat meat, you are to eat the lamb. So the Bible doesn't ever forbid it, but do you remember what Daniel and his friends did at the beginning of chapter 1? They knew what that meat represented. It represented a capitulation and acceptance of the values of Babylon. And they said, you know what? For a time, that's not us. We're not doing meat. We're just doing vegetables. And God supernaturally sustained them through that. Gave them muscle mass even more than the guys that were eating the meat. And so there are people that have taken up that idea of somehow, whether it was through temple worship or whatever, this meat might be contaminated. It might be too associated with pagan belief and worship. So we're just not going to eat any meat. That was their conviction. That was their belief. Others thought that they still ought to observe the Sabbath. 
Paul says one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Some thought we still need to keep this, the Sabbath, the seventh day. Others said, hey, in this new covenant, the Sabbath pointed to Christ and it's been fulfilled in Him. We rest in Christ now spiritually. We don't need to take the physical rest. So you got two categories here that Paul describes. You have the weak and you have the strong. The weak are those who are immature in their faith. They believed it was important to observe these rules, not as being necessary for salvation, but for being fruitful Christians. The strong, on the other hand, knew they didn't need to live by those rules. Those rules were not important. Those rules were not necessary for them to be fruitful Christians. And so how were these two groups supposed to interact? Verse 2, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Then he goes further in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. In other words, maintain loving fellowship with one another. And notice Paul understands the temptation on both sides. Though the strong are tempted to mock and ridicule the weak for following rules not found in the Bible. Those weak guys are too fundamental for us. On the other hand, the weak are tempted to judge the strong. They're thinking, boy, those guys are liberal. Right? You, you, see, you, see, the, you see the issue there? Oh, come on. Look, look how immature that guy is. Come on. It's fine. You, you know, put, order your pizza with bacon. God doesn't care. And, and they're saying, I heard an amen on that one. First one, I was wearing a bacon. Amen gets an amen. And the other people, the other people that are looking across and seeing the bacon, are thinking, oh, my goodness. What's the matter with those guys? Don't they love God? Come on. I mean, that, that, that could have been offered, that, that pig could have been part of a, a worship sacrifice to Artemis. What are they doing? What are they thinking about there? How do you come together? How, how do you strive for unity and fellowship? How do you welcome one another when, when you've got such, such a range of ideas and, and beliefs? Well, Paul gives us four directions. First of all, remember God's welcome. Remember God's welcome. He says, don't pass judgment on one another for God has welcomed you. Who are you then to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Because of the saving work of Christ, God has accepted us. He has welcomed us to himself, because in Christ our sins are forgiven, and the righteousness with which we need to stand before him has been granted to us by faith. Moreover, Paul says God is the one who upholds his people. He is the one who gives them sustaining grace, ensuring they are saved. So if God has welcomed a person that we don't disagree with, what does that matter? How can we not welcome him? If, it's, if, it's, if he's okay with God, how can he not be okay with us? That's what, that's what Paul's point here is. Our desire is not to be right in every instance. Our desire is not to bring everybody on board to our way of thinking. No. Our desire is to welcome those that God himself has welcomed, to love those whom God himself has loved. Second, we don't just remember God's welcome, we strive for God's honor. We strive for God's honor. Paul says that if one person esteems the Sabbath while another esteems all days alike, neither should judge the other because each one is fully convinced in his own mind. What does that mean? It means that he or she believes that whether or not they observe today, they are both seeking to honor the Lord. That's the motivation he sees in both people. Some people say, I got to keep the Sabbath. Other people say, I don't have to keep the Sabbath. 
Both of them are seeking to honor God. The one seeking to obey and honor that way. The other seeking to enjoy rest in Christ and therefore honor in that way. Doesn't matter whether they eat or not. Is the one abstaining? He's doing that because he's trying to do it in honor to God. The one who eats does so in honor to God, thankful for the food that he has. So as John Piper helpfully explains, the weak regard meat and wine as unclean because they believe eating meat and drinking wine will not glorify God as much as abstaining will. There is something about the meat and the wine that makes eating it and drinking it less honoring to God than abstaining. That's why they abstain. And that's why the strong should not despise the weak. They may be wrong, but they are seeking to honor the Lord in what they do. And that's the real issue. That's the burning question in our minds. Are we honoring the Lord, not just in our decisions about living the Christian life, but in how we're thinking about others who make decisions different from us? If we're honest in how we answer that, it will go a long way to help keep us from falling into legalism or lawlessness or lovelessness for those that are in fellowship with us. Third, we seek to maintain fellowship with God's people by living under God's lordship. We live under God's lordship. Paul says none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. Part of the reason that we are seeking to honor the Lord the way we do is because he is the Lord. It's not a name, it's a title. He is our Lord. He is our master. We are serving him. We're not serving one another. Now, in one sense, yeah, we do serve one another, right? In the sense that we wait tables, you know, that kind of service kind of a thing. We're seeking to be servants. But when it comes to authority, no, God is our only authority, right? He is the one to whom we answer. He is our Lord. And so if we're truly a believer, if we've put our hope and confidence in Christ for salvation rather than ourselves, what do we know? He is our Lord and our life is not our own. We don't live for us anymore. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you're one of God's people, your body, your soul, everything about you belongs to God. And so we seek to glorify him with our body, with, all, with our soul, with all that we have. What price what was given that we were purchased with? It was Christ's own blood poured out for us on the cross. And so we seek to live under God's lordship. And if we do that, what are we going to find? More concerned with fellowship among God's people than being right in these issues. Forcing people to change their mind when they're, when they're not ready to change their mind. All this comes to a head in verses 10 through 12. How do we maintain fellowship with God's people? By preparing for God's judgment. We prepare for God's judgment. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. It is so easy to get caught up in the opinions of others. Young people, I would say, even for you, especially this morning, this is a, a, a huge temptation for you to worry a lot about what other people think about you. 
to, to think about your friends or even those that are not your friends and think, what do they think about me? Is, is my body the right size and shape? Am I wearing the right clothes? Am I fitting in? Am I doing the right kind of activities so that people will like me and be welcoming of me? But let me just be clear, that is wrong thinking, young people. That, 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 that's not how you should allow yourself to be driven in your life. There is only one person whose opinion matters in the end, and that's God's. And, and so, so what you need to be asking yourself is, what does God think of me? What, 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 how does God see me? Is God going to approve of what I'm doing? Regardless of what everybody else says, what is God's opinion of me? You say, well, what about my mom and dad? Don't they count? Listen, if you are being motivated and are answering when your life, yes, God is happy with me right now, and you have scriptural support for it, I guarantee you 95% of the time your mom and dad are going to be okay with what you're doing, all right? You don't need to worry about that. But I also guarantee you this, if you're not worried about what God thinks about you, then your parents probably aren't going to be happy with you if they're believers. So the way to make them happy is to make God happy. Likewise, for us older, crusty people, we're more likely to be those that judge, aren't we? We're more likely to be those that are set in our ways, that are firm in our convictions, and we're looking at other people and say, why aren't they like us? Why don't they believe the way I believe? What's the matter with them? We look down our nose on people because they don't live like us, they don't think like us, they don't believe like us. And if that's you this morning, think about the judgment of God. Think about standing before Him and giving an account of your life. They're not going to stand before you and give an account. They're not answerable to you in that final, ultimate sense but they are accountable to God. So don't worry about whether or not they measure up with you. Let God sort it out in the end. But at the same time, when we hear Paul say, don't judge, don't get carried away. You know, don't, don't be like all the TV shows that you're going to watch this week or next week or the movies you're going to see and they're going to say, you can't judge me or don't judge me or I can't judge you. That's not the point here at least the way that I think that they're intending that. The same Paul that says don't judge one another also told the Corinthian church to judge the sinning brother who was having an affair with his mother-in-law and to throw him out of the church because he's acting like a pagan. Were they judging him? Yeah, you better believe they were judging him. Why? Because he was sinning. Once again, drill this into your head. We're not talking about giving people a pass on sin. We're not talking about giving ourselves a pass on sin. If you see me sinning, you better come after me. And you better give me a verbal shakeup and say, man, I don't think this is what God wants. Because that's the loving thing to do. And if I don't listen, you, you take it to the church. And, and, and if I don't listen to the church that says, John, you need to repent, then you throw me out like a pagan. That's what, that's what God says. But that's not what Paul's talking about here when he says don't judge. He's saying if you go over to Spurgeon's house and he lights up a cigar after dinner, don't go, oh, the great Spurgeon is going to hell, he's smoking a cigar. That's what he's saying you shouldn't do. That's the kind of thing he's talking about, non-sinful, secondary matters that we don't need to all agree about in order to be in fellowship with. We are striving to be unified. We're striving to be loving. We're striving to be together in fellowship, close partners with God's people. Therefore, we are, we are striving for that fellowship. We are seeking the fellowship of God's people to maintain it, to build it, to unify it. But more than that, we also need to be concerned to strengthen the faith of God's people, to strengthen the faith of God's people. This is the second major direction 
that Paul gives. And in fact, verse 13 and following, Paul really shifts gears here and he leans in hard on those that are strong. He says, in effect, the weight of responsibility for maintaining this unity and fellowship rests on you who know the extent of your Christian freedom. Let, therefore, he says, verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now, what's interesting that Paul has just said, don't despise the weak. And yet, what we're going to see in the the next verse, verse 14, he clearly says they're wrong. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So understand, Paul is here identifying with the strong. He's saying, I am in agreement with you that you can eat whatever you want now in the new covenant. It doesn't matter. You can be a vegetarian, but you can also be the most massive carnivore in the world. There is no food that is inherently unclean. But what does he do? He doesn't despise those that think differently. He doesn't despise the weak. He says, doesn't matter what you eat, doesn't matter what you drink, doesn't matter whether or not you keep the Sabbath. But he's telling the strong, don't rub their noses in them being wrong. He thinks the weak are wrong, but you're not to make fun of them for it. You have to look down on them for it. You're still supposed to love them and take care of them and seek to build up their faith. In fact, Paul says he's willing to give up his freedom for the sake of building up the weak and ensuring that they don't suffer spiritual harm because of what he does in good conscience. He says, keep your faith to yourself. Isn't that interesting? What does he mean there? Well, once again, you can't press that as a proof text for everything. See, we shouldn't evangelize. Paul said, keep your faith to yourself. That's not what we do with that. Look at the context. Okay, here's an example. When I was in college, um, there was uh, uh, twin brothers that that I came to, um, that lived in my dorm and I came to know really well. And both of them had done a pendulum swing out of an incredibly fundamentalist Christian home where, I mean, you know, everything was straight laced, buttoned down. uh, Everything was sin. You know, they had like, you know, 50 copies of every chick track on their, on their tables. And it's just like, I mean, it was crazy. And when they got out of that environment, guess what they did? They went hog wild and and they got wrapped up into a music culture that was steeped in rebellion and vulgarity. And then God got a hold of them. He convicted them of that. And, And in their mind, they're not sure if they were just Um, backsliding or if they really got saved after that period but nevertheless they were on fire for God and one of those brothers had a very tender conscience when it came to music he only listened to hymns he struggled even with listening to contemporary Christian music because for him the sinfulness of his life had been wrapped up in rock and pop music and so I remember one time just you know uh, answering email it was a there was a hot Summer afternoon, school's getting ready to be done almost, and I'm, you know, got blood, sweat, and tears spinning on my CD player, and he comes in, and he's like, are you even listening to these lyrics? And I'm like, not really, I just like the horns. It's like, I, you know, I mean, I, it's just music to, in my, my, my mind. And, you know, he got very, got very put off by that. So I said, hey, I'll just turn it off, no problem, man. And I just listened to that music when he was around, he's in my dorm. So, you know, so what did I, what did I do? Well, I got a blank tape and I recorded Blood, Sweat, and Tears off my CD to my blank tape. And when I drove 45 minutes to go home on the weekends, I was, you know, jamming to, you know, House in the Country and stuff. I mean, I had no problem listening to that music, listening to the Beatles. I listened to Christian stuff too. But, but I think I'm completely fine to 
hear love songs the Beatles are singing and, and think of my beautiful wife and how much I love her. I don't have a problem with that. But this guy did. So what did I do? I kept my faith to myself. I didn't play that music around him. I, I listened to it when, when he wasn't there. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's willing to give up his freedom for the sake of building up the weak and ensuring they don't suffer spiritual harm. Do not cause the weak to stumble. And in verse 15, it's even more weighty. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That is serious language there. And we don't have time to unpack that. There's two different options there uh, in, terms of, in terms of how you view that. And maybe we'll talk about it some other time. But for right now, what you need to understand is this is nothing to joke around about. That there, are, there are lives on the line. That if we, and we need to be seeking not to just bully through and say, I'm free in Christ, I'm going to do whatever I want. That, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is saying, how do I build up your faith? How do I help encourage you walk more closely in a way to God that honors him? And so how do we do that? Well, first of all, we need to walk in love. We make a commitment to walk in love. Love trumps liberty, okay? Every time. Love trumps liberty. That's what Paul says. I am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Now I'll come back to verse 14 later, but here we need to see the point, and that is we are called to walk in love, especially in matters of controversy. If we know our weaker brother and sister is going to be hurt by what we do, by what we eat, what we drink, or whatever, we just don't do it around them. We just say, I love you more than this other thing. I love you more than bacon or whatever. Now, this is different than someone who is demanding us to renounce our freedom because it's ungodly. I heard, I heard a New Testament scholar one time said, and this picks up what we talked about last week about how the Bible never forbids drinking alcohol, but it regularly condemns drunkenness. And he had someone just, just mercilessly coming after him angrily saying it was ungodly, it was sinful to drink, sinful to drink, sinful to drink. He said, what was my response to him? Hey, pass the port. I mean, I want to get a glass and I want to down it right in front of this guy. Why? Because, he, because he's an immature jerk. He's a punk. He's a Pharisee who is seeking to impose an artificial righteousness on, on me. Not going to tolerate it. But I go out for lunch and I meet a guy, he says, who's, who's been an alcoholic. So I'm, more, I'm ordering iced tea at my meal. I'm not going to flout my liberty in front of this guy because I know he's going to struggle. He's going to be weak for him and it's not a wise decision. You see the difference there? Love trumps our liberty. More than that, our job is not to push other people in their freedom but to encourage their faith. Get that in your head. All of us need to get that in our head. Our job is not to push people on their freedom but to encourage their faith. That's not being hypocritical. Some people will say, well, that's hypocritical. For you not to listen to the music when that other guy's there, but to listen to it elsewhere. And I say, why is that hypocritical? He knows I like that music, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But I'm not going to flaunt it in front of him. I'm not going to shove it in his face and say, oh, yeah, I'm free in Christ. 11. I'm not going to do that because that's not loving. That's not walking in love. More than that, we don't just walk in love. We're seeking to pursue peace. We're seeking to pursue peace. Have you ever thought about all the things that motivate people in other religions? I got thinking about this the other day. Rebecca and I were uh, going to school and she was telling me about her friend who's Mormon and she didn't really know anything about Mormonism. So we had to talk about that, about how they say they're Christian, but they're really not. And I said, and we're not talking about small things. We're talking about big things. Boop, 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 boop. And it was like, ding, I cannot believe they believe that. That's crazy. And I said, you're right. That's why they're not saved. 
Um, but what motivates them? Do you know it's becoming a god? I mean, they literally think that the, the god that they worship, Elohim, was once a man just like them, and because of his righteousness, he was evolved and exalted by some other god to be his own god, given rule over this planet and the solar system, and had many, many, many celestial goddess wives with whom he populated this world with spirit babies, and they took on flesh, and that's us. And our job is to worship him to, through good works, and therefore we will be exalted to be gods of our own day, hopefully, in our own planet. And for men, the best deal of all, you get tons of women. That's what motivates the Mormon to obedience. What about the Muslim? You know, I, I'd heard some, some differences about this, and I, and I looked it up, and it's interesting just how crucial a role, not just in the Quran, but also in the Hadiths, the kind of, um, you come, it's kind of like the descriptions of Muhammad's life and, and different things, and, and some of the other commentaries, this idea of the, the, the 72 virgin brides in paradise awaiting the good Muslim. And to be honest, it, it, is, it is seriously over the top. I'm, I'm, I would not even encourage you to look it up. Some of you are just so curious you're going to go look it up. But it, it's pornographic, the descriptions they go into about the bliss of paradise for the faithful Muslim. It's all driven by sex. So many of us in this life and this culture and even in these other religions are motivated by the fulfillment of physical desires and physical pleasures. But what does Paul say motivates us? What motivates us? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Friends, life is not always about our desires. Life is not always about just getting what we want when we want it because it makes us feel good. It is driven by selflessness, not selfishness, because it's driven by the Spirit. Righteousness, joy, and peace should lead us to love one another. And here's the thing. If we think, boy, we're losing out on Christianity. No, here's the thing. Righteousness, peace, and joy are actually going to be more fulfilling for you in eternity than anything promised in a false religion anything at all. And when we find ourselves motivated to, to live the way that God wants us to live, to be living selflessly by the Spirit, by righteousness, peace, and joy, then guess what happens? It ensures, verse 16, that the good gospel we proclaim isn't spoken of as evil. Therefore, Paul says, whoever serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. In other words, God is pleased with your actions and your actions bring harmony rather than discord in the church. People aren't saying, oh, look at that guy, look at that guy, look at that guy. I don't want to be around him. He's immature, da, 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 da. It's not, it's not happening. Everybody is coming together. Therefore, he says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's what should motivate us in our interactions with one another. A selfless spirit that is willing to lay aside freedom for the sake of others and maintaining peace among the people of God. That's how we seek to build up the faith of one another. That's going to mean times when we keep our mouth shut about things. I mean, frankly. I go to pastor's fellowships all the time. And, and they're good and godly men. And they just have very different opinions about things. And I can do one of two things. I can take something that doesn't matter a hill of beans in eternity. And I can make it something really important in that meeting and argue my case. And to be honest, I think I can pretty much win most of the time. Blow them right out of the water. By, by scripture uh, and by, by logic. Just boop, done. But is that going to build up their faith? Is that going to maintain unity among the churches in our... No, I'm just going to come off like a big jerk. 
It's not the loving thing to do. It's not the right thing to do. It's not the peaceful thing to do. Our goal is not to tear down someone's faith. It's not to put them in their place to be proven right. It is rather pursuing peace. Why? For the mutual upbuilding, for the encouragement of one another's faith. And that's why finally we must live by faith. We must live by faith. Years ago, there was an associate minister at a church that um, I'm well acquainted with. He believed it was okay uh, to have a beer at dinner. And he exercised that liberty, quite frankly, out at restaurants. And one time he was out eating with his wife and another young lady from the college group of the church. And this young lady didn't think it was okay to drink. She thought it was wrong for her to drink alcohol. And yet he ordered a big schooner with his hot wings. And she kind of looked surprised. And he said, what? It's okay. It's okay to drink. Here, have a drink. She's like, no, I don't think so. He goes, yeah, sure, have a drink, verse. I don't think so. Have a drink, verse, verse, why it's okay. Verse, why it's okay. Have a drink, seriously, just take a sip, just a sip. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. It was a very uncomfortable time for this young lady and utterly sinful on the part of the pastor. Completely wrong. You say, how do you know? Because this is exactly what Paul says here. Verse five, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. More than that, verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. There's no need to flaunt your liberty. We already said that, but more crucially, here's the promise and the warning about living by faith. Verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Remember when I said we'll come back to verse 14? We're coming back to it right now. Nothing is unclean in of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. What does Paul mean there? Here's what he means. If I think eating meat is wrong and I do it anyway, then I'm sinning. It doesn't matter if it's actually wrong or not. If I'm convinced it is wrong for me to pick up this ham sandwich and take a big bite of it because I shouldn't be eating ham and I violate my conscience, I go against what I think God wants in anyway, I just committed a sin. Not because the eating of the ham was inherently wrong, but because I said in that moment, I don't care what God says, I'm going to eat anyway. And Paul says, don't you dare cause someone else to do that. Don't you dare do that. I mean, even this morning, if you hear me say, like Paul, all foods are clean, you think, I'm not sure. Don't make yourself go out and eat food that you think you shouldn't be eating. For heaven's sake, don't eat until you are fully convinced from Scripture that it's okay. If you think you ought to keep the Sabbath, keep it until you're fully convinced by Scripture that you shouldn't. Do you understand the point that he's making here? Everything that we do has to be done by faith. If it's not from faith in God, it's from ourselves. If it's from ourselves, it glorifies ourselves. It doesn't glorify God, and therefore it's sin. And so don't let anybody push you past your conscience. And don't you who are strong or dare push someone else to go against their conscience. You are training them to be disobedient to God. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 16, I think, about those that cause these little ones to stumble? It would be better if there was a millstone put around your neck and you were dropped into the ocean. I don't know what's worse than that, but I don't want it, and neither do you. 
spiritual judgment's going to come if you are destroying the work of faith that God is doing in people's lives. We live by faith. We do things fully convinced. This is what is honoring to the Lord, and we ought to encourage others to live that way as well, not discourage them. Leslie Finn writes in an astonishingly titled book, Great Church Fights, about one person who went to a conference and, and was just meditating on all the things that we disagree about. He said, why disagreements exist today in our churches over certain practices? A Christian from the South may be repelled by a swimming party for both men and women together, then offended that his northern brother by lighting up a cigarette, may offend his northern brother by lighting up a cigarette. At an international conclave for missionaries, a woman from the Orient could not wear sandals with a clear conscience. A Christian from Western Canada thought it was worldly for a Christian acquaintance to wear a wedding ring. And a woman from Europe thought it was immoral for a wife not to wear a ring that signaled her status as a married woman. A man from Denmark was pained to even watch British Bible school students play soccer, while the British students shrank away when the man from Denmark smoked his pipe. Friends, we got a lot of disagreements about a lot of things that in the end don't really matter. And what we have to do is be on card that those, that those things do not become the cause for offense and disunity and damage done to the body of Christ. These things are non-essential matters. And our goal, our goal is not to sit in judgment, always cranky and hard-nosed towards others that don't believe like us, either with uh, downward condemnation because we know they're wrong or upward condemnation because we think that they're liberal and not saved. No. Remember that Christian fellowship is more important than Christian freedom. Therefore, maintain fellowship with and strengthen the faith of God's people. That's our charge this morning. Father, we're thankful for your word and we know how easy it is, Father, to have our mind and our thinking warped by uh, the values and the priorities of the world. But Father, that's, you've given us the antidote to those things through your word, your instruction. You're telling us how we ought to think and live, and in this instance, how we ought to cherish one another more, more than ourselves on things that just don't matter in eternity. Father, obviously it matters that we seek to honor you and love you, but Father, we're going to disagree about what that looks like sometimes, and that's okay. May each one of us be convinced in our own mind how we ought to best honor you and give you thanks and bring glory to the name of Christ. And therefore, by faith, let us live that out. And as we do that, help us to be patient and tolerant of others who disagree. Help us to love them, to love and serve them, even as we love and serve you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.